at the same time, if I was going to plan this business over again, I think the number one thing you have to have is adequate capitalization. And then you need to think about, okay, how am I going to really make a product that can compete at the highest echelons of uh, quality? Love an intro. I tell you what you info, but I never really been the type of dude to give no info. But if you see your end slow and you trying to get a benzo, I'll give your ass some game that'll change the way that you think, bro. Super skilled with the pencil, super ill in my mental. I reminisce on life, I'm nice. Here's my memento. Get it through your tempo. I get on any tempo and give it all I got. I'm hot. I got like ten flows, trying to live on the tenth flow across from residentials that I own. My mind stay grown. I used to think clothes. I really used to think hoes and what I do to get those. And then I switched it up. I'm only thinking potential. Yeah. Uh. Like what you do, homie? What's your vision? How you thinking? How you move, homie? Uh. And is you cool, homie? You thinking building, then that's something we can do, homie. Welcome to the Walk and Grow podcast. It's Ronnie and Francis on the mic. This is the one place where you're going to have a place to empower your mind, but not only that, but transform your reality. And you, the best part is you get to do it with us. Sometimes you'll hear us rant. So, or maybe you'll hear from a guest like today, who is the co-owner of Mystic Farm and Distillery located in Durham, North Carolina. If you haven't been there already, I'm going to be, I'm going to tell you guys, man, you're already missing out. It's a local gem. It's known for its handcraft spirits made from local source ingredients. Our guests today will share their experiences and the secrets behind their success in the spirits industry. So I hope you guys are all ready to hear about the art of distilling and not only that, but the stories that come behind the Mystic Farm and Distillery. Welcome, Jonathan Blitz, man. How are you guys doing today? Welcome, Thank welcome. You. Oh, we're, yeah, it's good to, good to be here. I appreciate you for even being here. There's, you know, a million and one things you could have been doing today, but you decided to spend some time with us, so. We're going to make sure that we, we give everybody, but not only that, but make sure that it's worth your time here. Um, to really kick things off, uh, we like to really get to know who you are. So is there anything in light that you want to share with the people, the audience that are listening? Yeah, I've had a, I've had a pretty interesting uh, set of careers. Uh, started out, got really interested in um, the ceramics industry, uh, pottery and handmaking pottery in uh, high school. And I apprenticed uh, with a, a local potter in St. Louis, Missouri, and then did that all through uh, undergrad. And, and for a few years after that, I, I taught and made production pottery and uh, was uh, doing equipment sales uh, part time also. Uh, and uh, that was that was a really interesting uh, career. I kind of uh, burned out on it a little bit. It wasn't, uh, as exciting as it was when I was a teenager <laughs> and, uh, went back to school, uh, and really went to school and, and enjoyed it for the first time. Uh, I went to law school and, uh, uh, got out of law school and, uh, right after, uh, September 11th, 2001 in the spring of 2002. So that was, uh, was pretty interesting. Uh, once, uh, uh, once I got out of law school, I, I worked for the federal courts for a couple of years, which is a really great experience. Uh, it it uh, gave me a lot of faith in the in the federal justice system for a while. Um, 
Obviously, we've seen some changes over the last few years that are not as positive. Um, but this was back before the courts were really politicized. Um, and then in uh, uh, 2004, I moved here to uh, Durham, North Carolina to get married and became a member of the North Carolina Bar, uh, practiced criminal defense here in Durham, uh, worked with a lot of the people who are now on the district court bench in Durham, which is very interesting. Uh, I actually think in terms of our local, uh, you know, lower level courts and also our superior court judge, our resident superior court bench, it's really great right now. Uh, I think we got a lot of people there who uh, I personally know and, and respect uh, as attorneys and also as uh you know, people just with good, a good sense of judgment, good values, uh, really care about the community, uh, have a real understanding of some of the challenges that lead people into the criminal justice system. Mm. Um, you know, for a long time uh, in the state courts, you had people coming out of the uh, uh, prosecutor's office going straight onto the bench. And uh, mm. there's a lot of people on the district court and now superior court bench who have uh, a background in defense, criminal defense. So they sort of have seen the other side and also, uh, you know, have the kind of judgment about cases where they're not just trying to throw the book at people. They really want to, you know, uh, have a better outcome for the community. Um, so, uh, but obviously that's a career you can get burnt out on pretty hard. So I, I left the practice of law and did a startup company, which got funded in September of 2008. And uh, so we raised some money. Uh, then two weeks later, GM declared bankruptcy. <laughs> so Yikes. not the best time in the world to do a startup, but um, we, uh, we, we found some success. We, we did okay. And uh, after, uh, while I was running that company, uh, my wife and I had our child, uh, uh, and, uh, I stayed at home with my son for a couple of years cause I really wanted to be there, uh, to raise him. And once he went off to preschool, I was really looking for something new and, mm -hmm. uh, got introduced to, uh, my business partner, Mike Sinclair, uh, through an engineer that we knew. And, uh, he said he was interested in brewing and I said, boy, I'm sure curious how spirits get made. And, uh, we ended up starting uh, a company and trying to raise money for it, which uh, was uh, something I thought would be easy and uh, <laughs> having done it for a tech company. And uh, it's not. <laughs> there was nobody who wanted to fund it. So uh, after, you know, probably 30 investor meetings, uh, Mike and I uh, walk out of the room and go out to our cars and he hands me a mason jar and he says, taste this. And it's the first product uh, we would go on to make, which is called Mystic Bourbon Liqueur. And it's bourbon, but it also has honey and a spice uh, mixture in it. And uh, it, uh, I tasted it and I said, you know what, this is what the world needs. Mm. It doesn't need another you know, bourbon, it needs uh, something sweet, approachable. Uh, this is what we should do. And I said, you know, what if we didn't start our own place, try to lease a place? What if we just find someone who's got some extra capacity 
and see if they need some money and we can do this on the cheap and we can just fund it ourselves, you know, put 15 grand on credit cards each and just do it. And that's what we did. And, uh, the product took off, uh, we were buying bourbon at that time that you were still able to buy wholesale bourbon at a reasonable price. And we bought bourbon and, uh, mix this product up. I mean, we would cook the spice mixture literally on my driveway <laughs> and oh, then we wow. would take it over to the uh, facility where we were blending it up. And, uh, it, it was, it was very intense. It was very labor intensive. Uh, we learned how to scale things up very quickly. Uh, both he and I are pretty handy people. Uh, and you know, uh, we, we just started doing stuff. I mean, we literally just scaled up, bought pumps, bought tanks, kept going. Uh, after about a year and a half, we started looking for a place to put the business because it didn't, we'd gotten big enough where we were in the way of the person whose space we were using. And, you know, it was very clear it wasn't going to work long-term. So, um, we, uh, we started looking for a facility and, uh, Zoning became a really big issue hmm. uh, because, you know, when you want to produce spirits, the zoning code in Durham says, and we wanted to stay in Durham because we had sort of a Durham identity. You know, people associated us with Durham. Most of our fans were in Durham. Durham ABC was selling the most product. Um, so a friend of mine was a realtor and... Uh, my wife and I were looking for another rental house because we have a couple of rental houses and we were looking at a third one. And I, every property we looked at was like a million dollars. It was contaminated. It was going to cost a million dollars to build a facility and nobody wanted to go into that kind of debt. It just didn't make sense. So I turned to, uh, uh, well, first we tried to lease something and nobody wanted to lease to us. Um, and leasing, it would have been the worst thing in the world. I've actually seen a few distilleries go bankrupt because you put so much into the facility, right? You have to buy steam pipes and boilers and cooling systems. And yeah, okay, five years goes really fast. And then you got to go and ask the landlord to let you stay. And they're like, well, sure, but you're going to have to give me another $2,000 a month, $3,000 a month. <laughs> Oh. And they've got you. They know they've got you. It's like moving a restaurant. You can't move a restaurant, right? Yikes. It's really hard. You put, you built a whole kitchen in there. Now you're going to move, right? Mm. So the landlord's mm. got you. So we, um, we started thinking about it. I turned to my wife and I said, look, you know, here we are looking for a rental house. It's going to cost a couple hundred thousand dollars. Why don't Mike and Katie and, and, and we go in and buy something together and lease it to the business that we know is going to pay the rent and we'll be better off. And then we can, you know, potentially own a nice piece of property and the business will pay for it. We'll get a bunch of tax benefits. Yada, yada. So we start looking for something and, uh, my business, uh, an old friend of mine who, uh, is a, an attorney went into the property management business <clears throat> after the, uh, crash of 2008, you know, property, uh, it's cooled off a lot. He was doing a lot of real estate closings and he said, Hey, I'm going to manage property. So I said, listen, can you do me a favor and help me find a piece of property for this thing? 
And he said, you know, there's, uh, there's this farm available near your house. <clears throat> and uh, I'm in Orange County. And so I start looking at the Orange County uh, zoning code, the Uniform Development Ordinance. And in this code, it says, if you're a farm brewery, you're approved automatically because of this uh, certain statute, you know. <laughs> and you go look up the statute. So I look up the statute. It is the statute that gives cities and counties the authority to impose zoning restrictions on properties. And it says farms are not subject to any zoning in North Carolina. And I looked at that and the clouds parted and the angels sang. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I was like, we're getting a farm. And it also turns out under a lot of circumstances, you're exempt from building permits, which is really nice too. And you're also exempt from stormwater, which is a quarter of a million dollars just to do a stormwater plan. And then you got to actually build it, right? And you're talking about eight, 10 months. And it was just like, okay, you're telling me we buy a farm and we can literally just start building this thing. Yeah. yeah. So we, uh, we found this property. We we're incredibly lucky. Uh, it cost us a song. Uh, it was cheaper than we thought it was going to be. And we, uh, we uh, found a really nice uh, lender who caters to farms that are not for profit. Um, the interest rates are unbelievable. It's a 20 year note. Everything was falling into place. And we, um, uh, we've been very lucky. I mean, I'll be honest with you. We dodged some bullets. We, we uh, did not go into some of the properties we had looked at um, initially. And uh, anyway, we ended up uh, building this first building in 2015, 2016, really, we bought the property in 15 uh, and started construction in 16. And uh, we had a good friend of Mike's who he had worked with at another company who was a sort of all, all kinds of trades. He was, he'd been a plumber and an electrician and some other stuff. We got a plumber to work with us and said, look, you get the permit, we'll pay you, you know, a chunk of money, but we'll do all the work and you just supervise us come out once in a while. And so everything basically worked out. We, uh, I did every stick of plumbing in the place. Uh, we all worked on the electrical. Uh, our friend did a lot of the electrical. We ended up hiring a electrician at the end to do a few things as we got sort of crunched for time. And, uh, we opened in December of 2016. Uh, and we had bought this, the first two stills that we had off of an auction a uh, pharmaceutical auction before we ever found the property. Um, this auction came up and Mike and I went in with our credit cards and we're like, okay, I want to buy. <laughs> and uh, we, we got incredible deals on everything. Got a forklift for like 1200 bucks. I mean, so we've been really, really lucky. Um, we started production. We work with a farmer named Joe Phelps out in Hillsboro. We lease about a hundred acres from him. And, uh, he grows, uh, corn and wheat with us. Uh, we've been using the same varieties since we started and we're very happy with them. Um, we're here making bourbon every day. Uh, in 2017, we, uh, put in a solar power system 
and the structure for that became uh, building two. So we have another 4,500 square feet over there. Uh, and our original intention was to have a, um, an event space and do weddings and things like that. Yeah. Um, what ended up happening is uh, Mike found a company that was looking for some space in a distillery to work on a spirits related technology. And they ended up uh, working with us and, and basically having a facility use agreement with us for about four years. And uh, that gave us a lot of runway, uh, put capital into the business. Uh, we've been very lucky. We haven't had to borrow money. Mm. Um, we have done some contract production for people. Uh, but, you know, it's still just the two couples. We own it nice. outright, which uh, I can't stress enough for people who are starting a business. Think real carefully before you take that investment money, you know, because uh, I have a lot of friends who have to write a check to investors every month or every year. And people who put in $100,000, you know, early on, and then, you know, you've written them $2 million in checks in five, six years, and you're looking at it and going, how do I get them out? Yeah. How do I get rid of them? It's just awful. Yeah. Um, so really, really think carefully about that. There's other sources of capital, you know. Um, Go ahead, Francis. I know, you, I know you're dying right now to ask a question. No, I, I, I mean, there's a... <laughs> There's a lot, of, a lot to unpack there, and I'm thank, thank you for sharing that experience that you, you went through. And it sounds like you've been fortunate enough to have the right relationship around you to move forward. How was that? You know, um, how would you describe you know, maintaining relationship with people and just coming across the right people to even go into business with? Because I'm sure you had to filter through some people along the way, right? Yeah, and. Um... I will say I, I, in the past, I have been in business with people who I really should not have. Uh, looking back, it wasn't the best decision. So I was very, um, I would say I had PTSD when I started working with Mike, to be honest with you. Um, there were some things that, uh, you know, I generalized from that previous business relationship. Uh, and, you know, Mike and I joke that we see each other more than we see our wives. I mean, so mm -hmm. we're, we're around each other a lot. Uh, we spent a lot of time on the road together promoting product early on uh, because we were in two other states. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that business relationship, you got to make sure you 100% trust the people you're working with. And you've got to maintain that trust by not doing side deals and shit like that and really watch out because there are tons of people once you start to get any measure of success everybody's your friend and a lot of people will try to wedge between you and your business partner because it's the quickest way to weaken a business and to get uh their hooks in so i will say unreservedly make sure you trust that person the other thing is, uh, you know, our wives have been incredibly supportive. The business would not have happened without, you know, my wife uh, is uh, incredible and she, she does very well. Her, her consulting business has always been a very huge source of uh, income. It's given us the runway to be able to do something like this. 
And she's also very patient. You know, um, a lot of times you say you're going to be home at 5.30 and 6.30, you're still talking to customers, you know, trying to sell that extra bottle. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's a lot of maintenance and it's a lot of juggling. And, um, you know, I look back, I'm very glad my son had the opportunity to basically grow up on the property here. You know, he was riding a lawn tractor with no blades on it, you know, when he was like seven and just driving all over the place and, you know, um, got to play, you know, he, he, he's done some welding, done some metal grinding, you know, uh, I let him, I obviously not unsupervised, but you know, <laughs> DSS coming in, but we, uh, you know, we, we, we've worked hard, I think, to have a good business relationship. And the other thing is, you know, you have to be realistic about, uh, how much money a business will actually put out, you know, um, this business in particular is incredibly capital intensive. We are shoveling money into that Rick house every month. You know, a lot of the revenue that comes into this building goes back in there as barrels because that's the future. Mm -hmm. And unless you want to borrow a bunch of money, which is, you know, a strategy and people who are better than me at finance can probably figure out how to do it well. But we, we keep our expenses really low. We pay for almost everything in cash, not currency, but you know, we don't borrow money on a mm -hmm. regular basis, like our very few of our suppliers give us terms because it's a really easy way to get into um, trouble because you're spending money and you don't see it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, this way we keep our every day, you're going in <laughs> looking at the banks, knowing what's going in and out. Um, I think that's really important. And also realizing that no employee will ever care as much as an owner. They just will never doesn't matter. They're great people. They're great employees. I couldn't ask for better, but at the end of the day, it's not their business. Right. You know, mm -hmm. would you uh, say it's, it's funny? Cause I sound like all of the people who I ever saw at like a business conference there like, <laughs> you know, and you, you live it and it's like, Oh shit, you're absolutely right. <laughs> would you say that you've always had this business mindset or is it something that you had to develop? I don't, have a personality where I can work for other people. Mm. I just can't do it. Um, being a lawyer was good for me, except I would take on my clients problems, but the self, you know, I need to be in charge of what I do all the time mm -hmm. because when people tell me what to do, I tend to get very angry, which I is, hope, I hope Mike doesn't good do if that. You want to get in with the, you know, in a conflict <laughs> with the government, um, you know, <laughs> Perfect for a, a criminal defense attorney, you know. Why is this? Because I say so. Oh, gotcha. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but but it's not. It, the other thing is, uh, yeah. I mean, that's really just my personality. I I don't have. I'd love to say, you know, oh, I just have this natural talent for it, whatever. I don't make the best decisions, and that's why I talk about everything with Mike. A lot of times. You know, he'll talk me off the ledge and be like, no, let's not do that, you know, mm -hmm. um, and I tend to buy the stuff I want to buy and spend money. <clears throat> and this is a really difficult time because a lot of expenses are going up and you can only raise prices so far before you get into, you know, cutting into your demand because mm -hmm. consumers are under a lot of pressure right now. So it's an interesting transition period. Um, I think, uh, 
I will say I've been very lucky. And also my wife is a, a business consultant, so I can go home and say, what do you think of this? Oh man, the luxury yeah. you have. Or I can even just talk about it and she'll tell me exactly <laughs> what to do. Yeah. That's, that is a luxury that you have. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, it's good. If she's good enough for a fortune 500, I can, I can take the advice, you know? Do you, um, find it easy to, you say you were able to scale the business pretty quickly. Um, now that you're at this point, or do you feel as though you have a solid plan in terms of where the things that you want to add down the line, uh, for the business itself, or is it kind of just staying afloat with everything, you know, price increase, you can't do that right now. You know, I will say this, you know, I've never viewed our business as something where we're going to grow and be selling, you know, 200,000 bottles a year more, you know, I, I, I don't view us as that kind of business. We're way, we're, I, I like to say we're a lot more like Bugatti than we are Ford, hmm. right? Ford's making cars for everybody. You want a car, they got your car. They got the car that's kind of cheap. They got the nice car. They got... We're making bourbon that you drink as a special occasion. It's the finest in the world. It's absolutely stellar. You're going to pay a lot for it. Mm. Our cheapest bottle of bourbon is $40 and it's a pint. Right? So that's an $80 fifth and it just goes up from there. And... Uh, if we get some good awards this year, our, our top end bottle is going to go to 200, maybe 250. Uh, and I want to be in that place because with the time and care that we put into everything, if we're not getting that kind of return, it's not a sustainable business. Now, if you're cranking it out, you know, you're making 25 barrels a shift or more, you know, I tell people on tours, when we hit about the 40 minute mark of the tour, I tell them, and this is true, Jim Beam in the last 40 minutes has made my entire annual output just in 40 minutes. So the difference in scale is huge. I would rather make, uh, you know, 300 bottles a day and sell them for, you know, 250 than, you know, <laughs> a smaller number and, and make a lot more of them. Gotcha. Um, it just, it's just the, the approach we're taking because I don't think, I, I think that the way that the combination of automation, huge amounts of capital, um, you know, just the way resources can be allocated using public markets and stuff like that. Mm-hmm you're not going to go out tomorrow and this isn't the 1920s or thirties, you know, you're not going to start a business. The odds are your small business is not going to become a publicly traded behemoth, you know, especially in manufacturing in the short term, it's just not going to happen. You know, maybe generationally you could pull that off, but it's, it's, it's very rare. And if you are going to do that, then you're going to focus absolutely on getting that price 
down to a level where the mass market, you know, anybody walking into the liquor store is going to be able to buy that. Most people, if you just look at the U.S. population that walk into a liquor store, do not want to spend $80 on a fifth of bourbon. Some of them will. Some of them will spend more than that. And that's great. But that's a very small slice of the population. And they need a different sales experience to really, truly be a believer in the value of that product. So um, in my view... What I want to do with my business is a lot less to do with um, expansion and more to do with um, uh, um, raising the consciousness of the consumer about the value of the product, because then price becomes much less of an issue. Right. And I actually want to chime in because I think this is a perfect time to speak on this. I was actually doing my due diligence and I saw something really interesting. (laughs) Um, Could you elaborate a little bit more about what do you mean by this out of the world bourbon that you guys are planning to age in space? Yeah. So this is a, 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 I I would say it's a side project, but it's sort of taken over my life a little bit. (laughs) Um, A few, several years ago, Mike and I were on some road trip or another, either to South Carolina, Virginia, something like that to sell liquor. Uh, Cause we were going up and down 85 constantly um, to stores and doing in-store events and things like that as uh, we were in those markets. Um, and we started talking about creating products that are truly different and really create an unbelievable experience for the owner. And Uh, At that time, there was a company called Jefferson's, and they were aging uh, barrels on ships, right? So they would get a cargo ship, they'd fill containers with barrels, and then they would sail those barrels around, supposedly. I've heard from other people that the barrels didn't actually go anywhere. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Um, I sound like some of those bad people. I didn't say it. (laughs) I'm just asking the question. Anyway, uh, long story short, um, we said, what's the most extreme thing you could do? And that is uh, we're going to send barrels into orbit and we're actually going to age them inside an orbiter. And, you know, we started talking about the actual practicality of this. Like, how do we get it to space? The big problem is, in fact, not getting it to space. That's hmm. getting something to orbit is a math problem. You, you got the money, they will send it to orbit for you. It's coming back. Oh. Because atmospheric reentry, there are not off-the-shelf solutions for that, uh, except for the Russians and Chinese and the Dragon capsule. <laughs> Pretty much all you got uh, hmm. for long-term orbital missions. And Dragon is really busy with NASA. And it costs a fortune because it has life support systems. Uh, And obviously nobody's doing space business with the Russian and Chinese right now. (laughs) Um, So what we did was um, sort of tabled uh, the idea for uh, a couple of, I would say about a year and a half, we just sort of sat on it. And then COVID uh, came in and I had started to get interested in it again. And it just stuck with me. It was like, boy, (laughs) if we could age bourbon in space, like it would put our business on the map. 
like everyone in the world would know mystic bourbon. Um, and I set this arbitrary idea. I was like, okay, what's the most expensive, you know, Pappy Van Winkle type bourbon, like how much? And I said, well, it can't cost any more than $12,000. <laughs> okay. Turns out you can barely get that much bourbon to orbit for $12,000, yeah. right? That's yeah. if you send a lot. And we started, I started talking with one company, uh, that had a, a solution. Um, actually we're not on, I don't think we're under NDA with them. It was uh, virgin orbit and Richard Branson's mm -hmm. one of his companies. And they had this, they had this solution where, uh, they fly a plane up high and then they drop a rocket off of it and the rocket takes off and, and gets you up to orbit. The problem is their payloads like. I think it's like 300 kilograms mm -hmm. and the cost was going to be extreme and they didn't have a re-entry solution. They were like, basically we specialize in putting satellites because that's where the money is, right? Everybody mm -hmm. wants to put a CubeSat or, you know, some kind of satellite in orbit. Well, we weren't going to do that. Uh, we need to come home. <laughs> so we talked with them and they said, well, there's a couple of startups and maybe they could get us, um, uh, they get us 25 kilograms back. So it's like 50 pounds. Okay. A barrel of bourbon weighs about 500 and well, close to 600 pounds. <clears throat> right. So it's not going to work. Like, mm -hmm. I, and, and the thing is, I didn't want to do a gimmick, right? I didn't want to go up for like 20 minutes or 20 days or two months and then come back. Cause that's, it's not going to change, right? You're, you're going to have a gimmick. And I wanted this to be for real. So um, this is... we kind of tabled it again for a couple of years. And then <clears throat> this last, I guess it was September or October, I started to get really serious about this. I was <laughs> like, this has got to be doable. Right. And so I started talking with SpaceX and I started talking with some other companies. And we came up with, uh, you know, a plan for this, like who's going to take it up. Okay. Well, SpaceX, they literally have something on their website. You can punch in how much is away. What's the altitude of your orbit? And it'll spit out like the price. Wow. That'd be pretty close to what they were offering. The problem is they, they only had one reentry vehicle, which is the dragon capsule and they can't spare it. Cause like NASA's using it and NASA's got, they can write checks all day long, right? They print money. <laughs> so I, we found a couple of different companies that are coming to market with reentry solutions. And they were willing to expedite their um, plans. And we've been working with a partner who I think we're going to sign some agreements with pretty soon. Uh, and they have a vehicle that has uh, 2.6 kilo uh, metric tons. So 2,600 kilograms. Well, it just so happens that a barrel of bourbon with a shell around it, it weighs about 260 kilograms. So I can put 10 barrels uh, and, you know, they've got like engineers doing 3d, you know, shoehorn configurations and try to get all the barrels yeah. inside there, but we'll, we'll figure it out. Um, so the barrels will go inside their vehicle and they'll go up and then they'll come back. And they also have about 4,000 pounds, little 4,500 pounds, something like that, two metric tons 
of payload in a service module, right? So the, you got the orbiter, which is pressurized. You, you know, if it had life support, you could breathe in it. And then the other piece is like uh, the garage, basically, where you keep the water heater and everything, <laughs> you know, extra fuel, stuff like that. Well, that service module gets broken off and it falls into uh, the Earth's atmosphere and burns up. But you have all this payload capacity inside there that we don't need for our mission. And what we're going to do is we're going to donate that to universities. And I want to create some programs for school kids where they can interact in real time with some experiments up there and actually do stuff in space uh, through that mission. Because the thing is, it's just wasted, you know, and to not send that payload up when we're paying for it anyway, because we're having to buy the whole mission. Um, so that's been a really cool part of it as well. But um, we figured out, hey, we're going to have to find a way to identify each purchaser. So we, uh, we spent a lot of time thinking about uh, doing different claim checks and digital receipts and stuff like that. Turns out the NFT, non-fungible token, is the perfect way to do it. Right. Uh, it's an actual real-world asset you can tie to the – and it also acts as a, um, like a certificate of authenticity – because if you're going to go buy one of those bottles and the person doesn't have the NFT that matches that bottle, you know it's either fake. Uh, it's got to be a fake. Right. It can't be real. Or they lost the NFT, in which case that bottle is suspect, so you're not mm -hmm. going to buy it. Yeah. So as long as they have those two pieces, though, you have pretty good – the only thing they would be doing maybe is sell you a counterfeit, but then their actual bottle that they copied – will be worthless because you can't prove it's the real thing. Right. So the NFT and the bottle together make uh, very secure. Um, so we're in the final stages now of testing that um, <laughs> NFT minting process. They call it minting. Mm -hmm. uh, and that uh, is a whole new world for me because I don't know <laughs> anything about it. Uh, and uh, so it's 75000 a bottle if any of your listeners are in the market. We'll put a, a link to the site. We're going to release, uh, uh, we'll give everybody notice uh, 72 hours before they can start minting. And there'll be a limit of 15 per day. Mm. 15 units per day will be able gotcha. to be purchased. So it'll take, uh, we're, we're pre-selling the first thousand bottles. Uh, those deposits will be held in a bank account until the bourbon comes back from space. So if we have to give refunds, we can, we're using other financing to launch the mission. And, uh, I, I'm really excited about, it. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm planning to do a Netflix show. Um, the NFT holders will all get access to an app and they'll get all the footage, um, that's, that's shot except for anything <laughs> embarrassing or inappropriate. <laughs> But they'll, they'll also have telemetry, so they'll be able to see uh, if the barrels are coming over their location. It'll notify them on their phone, and they can go outside and hold the thing up to the sky, and it'll you know tell them oh, where to look. Yes. Uh, and then they'll also have the actual temperature pressure and a live camera feed inside each barrel. Wow. So they this can is... pick a barrel to look at and see how they're this is doing. going to and then be. when it comes back uh they'll get the bottle they'll get a piece of a barrel from space uh they'll also get a 50 milliliter sample so they can taste it without opening the big bottle because mm -hmm. once you open that of course it yeah. it changes the value quite a bit yeah, yeah. 
How long well, is it? Wants the sealed one, right? <laughs> How long is it going to be aging for? So it's going to age. Uh, the barrels will be at least three years old before they go up, and then uh, they'll age a full year in space. Mm. That's awesome. It's this is this is a a cool project that you have on your hands, and I'm sure it took a lot of time to kind of put all the the dot together, which you're still doing. Uh, in terms mm-hmm. of time intensive, compared to what you're doing on the ground, which part of this entire project will be you know mo- mostly you know the most consuming or challenging to you at this time, if at all? Well, right now it's uh, we're we're just letting the tech team get the NFT together. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've been we did an initial sort of blast of publicity out there to sort of get people thinking about it, and then <clears throat> once the NFT starts selling, I think we'll get a lot more media attention, uh, especially if they're selling you know fast. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, the fear is that they won't sell, but pretty much everybody's told us they're going to sell, so mm-hmm. we'll see. Um, we've gotten a lot of interest, a lot of expressions of interest, which is very exciting. And then uh, I think the real work starts when uh, we get the mission ready because, you know, we have a pretty limited amount of time to get the outer shells of the barrels designed, engineered, tested. Um, we're going to be working with uh, some universities to do some uh, studies of the bourbon before and after. So we're going to have to design that experimental protocol. Uh, we have to select the barrels uh, and blend them up. There's a lot of packaging work that has to be done. I mean, obviously, we'll have the year it's in space to actually make the packaging. But you can imagine, uh, you know, people can see the prototype packaging, but actually producing a thousand units of those bottles with the each bottle has uh, inset stainless steel letters that have to be laser cut and set almost like jewels in the surface of the glass. We have to laser etch each bottle. Each bottle has to have a custom laser uh, QR code that matches the NFT. Um, so just, you know, getting that laser set up and doing all that work, I think, is probably going to take a lot of intensive management. Um, one thing I've found is that uh, sometimes it pays to just farm stuff out, but a lot of times... Uh, even if you're going to have someone else advise you or help you or whatever, you should know everything about that process. So I've become an expert on compression chillers. Hmm. I've become an expert on uh, how you weld stainless steel pipe properly. You know, I don't do it personally. I, I haven't developed the actual manual skill, but I know when somebody you know, something goes wrong with the boiler. I've got a guy I can call and he can, you know, talk me through some troubleshooting and save us a $2,000 service call. Mm -hmm. And of course he never will buy whiskey again. The rest, (laughs) But (laughs) the handy product to have uh, available. Uh, But I think it's really important. I think people have this idea when they want to start a business that they're like, oh, in five years, my employees are just going to run everything. And we do, we are incredibly lucky. We have people who I can say, look, I just don't have time to do X, Y, and Z. Can you figure it out? And they'll figure it out. And they're world-class. We're very, our head distiller is an incredible mechanic. Uh, He knows more about mechanics and stuff than I do, 
but I can say, hey, you know, you need to get a crescent wrench and do this, that, and the other thing. And he'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And he can, I can just leave it in his capable hands. It's very unusual that a business will have a lot of people like that. And the problem that happens is if you can afford a lot of people like that, you become utterly dependent on them and you become complacent and you start burning money in places you shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think especially when it comes to the packaging on the Galactic, first of all, I designed it, so I'm in love with it. You know, it's my baby. Nice. But second, I, I think it would be better for us to laser those in-house than send them out somewhere. Because if somebody fucks up a thousand bottles, you know, by the time I see the finished mistake, let's say those QR codes won't scan. Oh my God, the QR codes won't scan. Holy shit. Yeah, that's it. And they can't be glued on. They can't be, you know, a label. It has to be laser etched into the the bottle. That's the purpose, right? Oh my goodness. Everything's got to be perfect. Right. So, you know, my view of it is I'd rather hire somebody, buy a laser, do it all in house here, you know, safely. But, Mm -hmm. you know, you get a laser that, you know, you open the lid and it shuts off. Um, you know, and that sort of thing. So it's just like, you know, our barrels, we laser our own barrel heads here, you know, and the, the lasers aren't that expensive. It's a little time consuming. I spend a couple hours a week doing it, but you know, there are a few people here who can set it up and push the button and, you know, <laughs> we know it's going to work. Gotcha. I, <clears throat> excuse me. You were talking about just the business aspect of, you know, just having a bourbon company. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start a bourbon or whiskey or some sort of spirits company at this current moment? What would it be? Um, so everybody's going to tell you the same three things, I think. The first thing I will tell you that is absolutely critical is buy the real estate first. Hmm. Own the property, own the building, have control. If you don't think you can afford it, then you don't have enough money to start a bourbon business. I do, this, I don't believe, especially now that there is almost no wholesale bourbon available at any price. Uh, I think it is very, very difficult to bootstrap your way into this business like we did with a credit card. And even though I say we did that, Mike and I and our wives were still able to write a big enough check to do a down payment, right? We had the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We had the credit to buy, you know, a half a million dollars in land and building. Um, Second, uh, make sure you have enough capital to make enough bourbon. So your future growth depends on what ages to maturity three years from now, three and a half years from now. Um, I, when I started in the business, I thought that people who thought the bourbon needed to be four or five years old were snobs and it would be perfectly good at two years, two and a half years. They're right. Okay. If it's not four years old, three and a half in this climate, Mm. you're not going to compete. Right. So, uh, make sure you have enough money to shovel, you know, make that first hundred barrels. Um, and what I, you know, when people hire me as a consultant, 
which I don't really do that much anymore. The first thing I tell them is before you do anything, find a mash bill you like, find the cuts that you like. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go take some classes and actually get some hands-on experience. <laughs> but once you do all that, you need to, um, you need to make a hundred barrels and just put them up for aging. Because by the time you buy the land, get the facility commission, get all your permits and everything, you're only gonna have six or eight months to wait for that bourbon to be saleable. <laughs> and you'll be able to get your production process up and running and open your doors. But it takes a huge amount of money. So 100 barrels of bourbon right now, if you can find someone with capacity, is probably $125,000, right? Yeah. And so you're either investing that money or spending it. Now we didn't do that. We were putting up, you know, three a week for a long time, and we had some product we had made before, uh, and we just went very slowly and were very small. I mean, I still get people coming over here. They're like, "Man, I've lived around the corner for three years. I've never known you even here." Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, we're small. Yeah. <laughs> we're small. And we, we can't grow that big. We pulled out of Virginia and South Carolina because we didn't have enough bourbon. Mm -hmm. But you got to remember, as soon as you sell a barrel that is too young, that's not up to quality, I don't even mean age. It just might not be mature yet. Mm -hmm. you know, every barrel is different. Some of the barrels will be mature younger. But, you know, you sell that, that bad bourbon, you've just destroyed your brand. Yeah. Anybody who buys that is never going to buy a second bottle. And so that's a big part of it. I would say if you ask me to start another bourbon business today and to be 100% comfortable that you would get that to profit, assuming you know you know what you're doing and you know how to make the product, um, I would want probably 6 or $7 million dollars. That would make me feel really comfortable. I mm -hmm. think you could probably do it with four, but it's a lot of money. It's capital intensive, and you're that's you pulling a paycheck too. If you can live without a paycheck, you know, knock a half a million dollars off of that for the money you're going to need for the first four years, five years. You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean, we had so many lucky breaks. Uh, I can't even tell you. Uh, I don't, I don't think lightning strikes twice. I think, uh, and I don't credit us as like some geniuses. We got lucky with a lot of things. COVID was an incredible blessing for us because we made hand sanitizer and that brought in a stupid amount of money. Oh, wow. Fast. It, it got all, any debt that we had gone, gone because gone. of hand sanitizer. We put in, <laughs> we, put in we, we didn't pay this much, but we put in, probably $100,000 worth of production capacity. Just if I had gone out and bought that equipment new on the market, it would have mm. cost me a hundred grand. Um, I'm, I'm a chintzy guy. I go, I go on eBay. I go on auction sites. We have a tank outside. It's 1500 gallon, uh, stripping still and mash, mash ton. And you'd probably pay probably $80,000 for that if he went out and bought it. And I think we've got 12,000 in it. You know, we've got a mill that, that works well enough for us. And, you know, a new mill is 14,000. I think I have two grand in it. 
you know. So it's truly indeed just being yeah, you gotta, diligent, you, you know. You're taking risks um, out there. But part and, of and it, it is. Pays off. Well, and I also have, you know, I, I have found people who are able to help us. So that tank was cheap because it wasn't exactly right. And I was able to get a welder fabricator to help us um, put it in and all that stuff. And we didn't pay him market rates. If we had, it would have brought that price way up. We, uh, you know, Brian and, and, and I were, and Mike were able to take the mill apart completely. I called the company that made it. They were all happy that somebody was re restoring a, you know, a 40 year old mill. So they helped us and they're like, Oh yeah, we'll help you just ship it to us, whatever, you know, it's 45 years old, something like that. And, uh, you know, um, and I got it from a, a guy who had bought it out of an auction for a song. So, uh, I, I think, I think that's a nice approach to take. If I were to do another distillery, I wouldn't want to do that. I don't want to just spend the money, get the stuff professionally installed. It's, it's nice. It's fun. It's rewarding for me because all the money goes right back in my pocket, you know, in Mike's pocket. It's like every dollar we save is a dollar we can spend on our families. Right. But at the same time, if I was going to plan this business over again, I think the number one thing you have to have is adequate capitalization. And then you need to think about, okay, how am I going to really make a product that can compete at the highest echelons of uh, quality? And because that's, that's where you, a, a craft business can make money. If you're trying, like I, I watch people try to sell rum for $20 a bottle, you know? I can't buy a nice bottle, a label, a closure. You know, we don't pay for bottling. We don't pay much for bottling labor because we have a volunteer crew. So I, I've got the cost of the t-shirts and, you know, lunch or whatever. But I can't figure out how Captain Morgan makes a profit. <laughs> like, what, you can buy, what, a handle of that for like 15 bucks or something? Yeah, right. Yeah. Like, I, I couldn't even pay for the juice. <laughs> Even if I didn't make it, I like couldn't get it here in a bottle for that amount of money. So it just, you can't compete at that part of the market. You know, if you want to create a business like that, borrow a billion dollars, build a distillery that looks more like an oil refinery, mm -hmm. make some really cheap alcohol and get it out there. But if you're trying to start it at the craft scale, have enough money to make a truly superior product and then you know, use that, uh, runway to, to really age it to a, a good maturity and everything else. Hmm. So we've heard a lot about your past. We heard a lot about mystic even what's been like kind of during that process. How does Jonathan Blitz want to be remembered? Hmm. It's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I've, I've just hit 50. So I'm thinking about mortality more and more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't know that I need to be remembered. I don't think any of us really will be remembered. You know, if you think back, like, do you know who your great, 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 great grandfather was? Nope. I don't think any of us do. I think life is transitory and there's a really mind blowing film on, uh, Netflix about infinity. Mm-hmm. 
and just the concept of infinity. And when you look at time scales, I don't know that, that this life is necessarily about, uh, um, creating some sort of legacy, you know, uh, I think it's more about day-to-day -day decisions, you know, uh, and continually learning stuff. Yeah. And I think that's the most important thing. Um, setting a good example for my son is, is, is good, mm -hmm. but you know, and he's never met his, uh, my dad, because my dad passed away when I was young and, uh, he doesn't really know. He certainly doesn't know any great grandparents. Mm. Uh, I just, I don't know that that, how you're remembered is the key thing. I mean, it'd be nice to have, you know, but like when you see that statue, like you go out to Jack Daniels, right. And you see the statue of him sitting on the bench or whatever. Um, does anybody really know who he was or is it just like this Disney story about like more people probably know that he kicked his safe and died of gangrene than actually know what he thought about anything substantive. Yeah. You know, he's like a cartoon character. And for me, that doesn't hold a lot of appeal. Like having a statue of me outside a distillery or something you know, maybe a Wikipedia article, the first person to age bourbon in space. You know, that's <laughs> what does that really get you? Right. Yeah. Um, I think it's more what we do day to day. I hope to make enough money to really do something philanthropic that makes a difference, you know, create some social programs and stuff. Hmm. I think we have uh, a huge responsibility right now as American citizens to get our democracy back on track because it's pretty fucked up. <laughs> and I say that as somebody who's worked in the federal and state criminal justice systems. And it's, I am uh, not optimistic <laughs> that uh, the long-term failures in our education system and everything else are going to lead us to yeah. recapture uh, a true representative democracy. I think when people look at, the U.S. from outside the U.S., they say, oh, this is kind of like a second-rate democracy. It's not, hmm. it, it's not, it's not as democratic as a lot of other countries. And that's scary because we were supposed to be the, the one. example for the world. Yeah. And look, no, I'm not defending, you know, the problems that we're just starting. I mean, I think the countervailing idea that maybe Right now, what we're seeing is a backlash against really fixing some of the shit that's been a problem since the Civil War, right? Yeah. Because <laughs> Civil War issues were never really resolved. We just stopped fighting with guns, and then it became, okay, well, who's going to have the most regressive social policy? Um, but those kind of problems, I think... Uh, I think that's more of what we're responsible for dealing with right now. And I'd, I'd rather spend my time doing that than worrying about what some future generation is going to think of me. Cause they're not going to know who I am. Mm. Gotcha. I, I do have a couple of questions regarding one, uh, regarding your personal life. And the second one more about, uh, the aging bourbon in space. My final question with that is, you know, you're setting the trend there. You're setting the tone for what it 
aging bourbon may look like in the next 10 to 20, 30 years, uh, which means there'll be a lot of people coming, most likely coming to you to ask for your experience and knowledge in terms of what it took to get there. Are you kind of preparing yourself for that, you know, um, next step of your life? Because it will be attention. You mentioned that once you start, you know, going into the NFT space, there'll be more attention towards that. You know, and you talked about the Netflix documentary as well. So you're setting the pace and it would attract some attention. Are you kind of preparing yourself for that next phase? I'm, yeah, I'll be honest with you. I mean, I think at some point, uh, this business will probably end up getting acquired. You know, Don't some say other that. company will probably buy it. Um, hey, look, I'm not going to sit here and tell you that I'm going to hold on to it. I've watched too many people turn down decent offers for their business only to find that they weren't able to grow it the way they thought they could. Gotcha. Um, you know, this is how innovation works, right? You innovate, you create something new. And then uh, businesses that can't, for whatever reason, have the risk of innovation in-house go and, uh, um, you know, acquire that mm. when it's de-risked, when it's shown to be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, I would take issue with the idea that this is the way we're going to age spirits in the future. It's really freaking expensive. Like, I think there'll be a few brands that do this to create ultra luxury products. But think about the kind of people who buy a seventy-five dollars or $100,000 bottle of liquor or the businesses that cater to people who will slap down a, a credit card and buy a shot of this stuff for, you know, three of their friends to show off. Mm. That's, I don't think that's sustainable for a large proportion of the population yeah. to do, yeah. right? <laughs> And the other thing is, we don't know, right? It's going to come back. It's going to be absolutely unique, absolutely intrinsically mm-hmm. valuable because it was the first. But it, it, I, who knows what it's going to do to the product? It'll yeah. make it unique, but it may not make it, you know, so much better than, uh, you know, something that costs a tenth the price, mm-hmm. right? So, um. I think it'll be interesting, but yeah, I mean, for us, I'm, I'm documenting it. I think the Netflix documentary, first of all, I, I watched somebody feed Phil and I'm like, man, I want to go around the world and eat stuff. <laughs> you know, we're definitely shoot stuff in restaurants. I mean, yeah. we're going to the, the company that we're working with has a, a, a location in Berlin. And the last time I was in Berlin with, uh, with my other startup, we, uh, we happened to pop into this Turkish restaurant on one of the nights of Ramadan. Mm. And as you guys might know, during Ramadan, they fast during the day. And then at night, they, they're allowed to eat. eat. And I want to tell you, we were joking. It was like Fleischfest 2011. They're just coming around with these huge trays of Turkish pizza and, and shawarma and shish kebab and pilaf. And I'm just going crazy. I mean, that was just incredible. <laughs> You know, and I would love to shoot that and love to share that experience with people. Right. Um, so for me, that's that's the fun of it. Listen, so we're sitting around, we're talking, and before we announce this project, like, you know, the week before you you do all the press releases, you start getting really nervous, right? Because who knows? It might flop. It might People might make fun of you. 
Uh, people are always going to make tro- the, the world is rich in trolls right now. <laughs> the internet has given us, you know, too much, too much actual in real time. Uh, uh. <laughs> yeah. So, but the thing is, we were my business partner was like, man, you know, Jim Beams just they they can just they can just write a check like they can do this tomorrow like they well, they don't need to pre sell the bottles they don't need to. And I said, Mike. Let's let's back up for a minute. You're a mid-level manager, a brand manager at Jim Beam, right? Or Beam Suntory, right? And it's your job to come up with new products and and spend tens of millions of investor funds to get these to market. Mm-hmm. And you walk into a conference room with the C-suite people and you say, all right, Here's my idea. We're going to take 10 barrels of bourbon and shoot them into orbit. And then when it comes back, we're going to sell it for $100,000 a bottle. Right? Your career is over. Okay? You're done. Like, you might stay there for another year, but you better start working on that resume because the next round of layoffs, you're in it. Like, who is this nut? Like, we don't take that kind of risk. Yeah. So, yeah, in terms of innovation, I don't think – and I don't think this is, like, groundbreaking in the sense that as soon as we did this, everybody was – like, some of the bourbon podcasters are like, we all knew it would happen. We just didn't know who was going to do it. And the first time I called SpaceX, the gal who does – the ride share, she's a brilliant engineer, and she said, you know, I get these calls, like, two times a month. Oh, wow. And you're the first people we've talked to who understand exactly what it's going to cost and exactly what it's going to take to get this stuff to orbit and back and how much those bottles are going to have to sell for in order to make this a viable space mission. And also, we had thought about all the stuff like bourbon sloshing around and, and, and it destabilizing the, the spacecraft. So we actually have the, the company that makes the barrels called the Cooperage. Uh, West Virginia Great Barrel Company is going to take the barrels apart, put stainless steel baffles inside them so that the bourbon can't slosh enough to destabilize the the orbit. But, you know, this is not like, oh, brilliant idea that came out of, you know, if only they'd thought of that first. Lots of people have thought of it. Mm-hmm. The trick is nobody's figured out how to make it a viable commercial endeavor. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, like, do I think we could sell another 1,500 bottles for the same price? I don't know. I don't know that the second mission could could command the same amount of money. Like, the price would have to go down. Um, now, the other mission I really want to do, the same company we're working with, in 2029 or 30, they are going to orbit the moon. So I want to send the barrels up to orbit the moon for a year. <laughs> and uh, obviously the term mystic, uh, the the, uh, the name uh, mystic lunacy is very appealing to put on the bottle. Yeah. The bottle, yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, so th- I think there's always room to push that envelope and we'll see what the market, because markets speak, right? Yeah, right. And they speak louder than any, you can say, Oh, I got this great idea. I know this is going to work. I'll give you a perfect example. We do something here called single barrel experience, right? People come in, they work with us for um, uh, a year, 
I'm sorry, uh, like five years. So they work with us for a full day. They make the bourbon. And then every year they're coming back and taking a pint off of the barrel. And when it's done, they get uh, a bottle of the finished product. And then they have dibs all the way through. They can buy as many bottles out of that barrel during the course of the aging process, right? So um, the pricing of that has been something that we've argued about internally for a long time. Mm. And our costs have continued to go up. The value of the experience, I think, is, is very high. And we started out in 2017, it cost $399. We sold it for $399. Mm. Uh, after COVID, you know, we sort of shut down during COVID, stopped offering it. After COVID, we started offering it again. And it was, um, we said, okay, we'll do it for, uh, I think it was $5.99 we went up to. And I, I, I was like, guys, it's just not going to sell. It's not going to sell. We're going to have to stop doing them. It sold better than ever. Oh, then the barrel costs started going up. We did some, you know, you constantly have to be looking at what your costs are because you can be mm -hmm. losing money. And uh, so we raised it to $9.99 is booked out six months in advance. Hmm. It was became a problem. It was its own worst enemy because people were like, oh, if I can't get in for six months, I'm not even going to book it. Yeah. So we raised it to $11.99. And now we're finally starting to see, you know, oh, you only have to wait three months to do it. Hmm. So you don't know what people will pay for something. You have no idea. I, I think $75,000... I mean, like, I can't imagine spending that much money on a bottle of liquor. Yeah. <laughs> on certain other assets, maybe, you know, but that's like, that's like a really, really, really nice car. Right. Hmm. But there are people out there who think that's perfectly reasonable. Yeah. Hey, you yeah. know, there's a market for everything. <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if there's enough of them to, to fund a space mission. You know, to secure the the the. I want to be clear: we're not using that sale money to fund the mission. We're we're, we're we'll be able to do refunds, but um, <laughs> you know, I don't know if there's a thousand of them out there, but uh, I think there are. So I think the market really speaks to you about stuff like that, and that's something else in business. You know, part of the big risk is pricing is very difficult. You know, and people will spend money on things for reasons completely extrinsic to the actual utility of the product. I mean, we all know that. Like what's the difference between a plastic shopping bag and a Birkin bag? You know, they both carry your stuff, right? Right. You know, I mean, if all you need to do is carry a bag of stuff. <laughs> mm -hmm. And yeah. you know, I mostly wear this every day. I don't, <laughs> I don't have much. <laughs> I don't spend money on cars. I, my son asked me the other day, he said, uh, he said, uh, why don't we have, why don't we go buy a Tesla? He said, why don't you buy that? I said, you know, I would much rather buy, put a nice fat down payment on a rental house than drive around in a Tesla. Like that just, it's not worth it to me. Yeah. I don't need a nice car. I drive a, basically a 10 year old, uh, Honda makes me happy. You know? Cool. 
Awesome. Last, uh, last question here before we wrap it up is about around time. We spent a lot of time talking Ooh. about, you know, <clears throat> taking things to space and the time that it took. I know the work that you do is very time and consuming as well. How do you balance your time with family, you know, as a family man yourself? Between Not well. Work? Gotcha. Not well. I'm a workaholic. Uh, Mike's the same way. We were talking about it uh, a couple of years ago. The best thing about COVID for me is that because we were considered an essential business and because we were making the sanitizer uh, and because we own the company and can make our own decisions and we got vaccines very fast, uh, we were, you know, right behind the, the teachers and nurses. Um, uh, I, I go stir crazy if I'm not at work. I, I, if I had to sit home during the pandemic, I would have probably had very bad mental health problems. Uh, I, I can't, I have a terrible work-life balance. Um, the nice thing about this business is I was able to bring my son up here every day after school with me. Um, I would literally drive 40 minutes back and forth to his school, pick him up, come back here for a few hours every night. Uh, you know, stay here till six, six 30. Mm-hmm. Um, cause that's just what I like. You know, I like to work. I love to be around process. Um, even if I'm goofing off, I'm here, I can, you know, do stuff with customers, uh, jump into a task. Uh, I, a lot of people talk a lot about work-life balance. I've never had it. Mm. Uh, I'm, I, this is one of the reasons I couldn't continue to practice law. I can't turn it off. Yeah. Even, even if I have a case that's, um, you know, nothing's happening. There's nothing I can do about it. It's very hard for me not to obsess over it. So it's what gets you, just said, keep you going. It's what keeps uh, you going. The work keeps you going. Yeah. And I, I, I have that obsessive personality, you know, um, I truly believe that this, uh, that this business is successful because we're making the best possible product and one of the best products in the world. And we didn't know that it was going to be this good. We just tried to do everything right. Right. But now, um, you know, I certainly don't believe that I could step away from this business for five months or Mike could and uh, just, you know, find it okay. I would go nuts and I think the business would suffer. And part of that maybe is my failings as a, as a manager to properly, you know, get everything turned into a routine. Um, but I will tell you, I mean, I've seen a lot of people go hands off with their businesses and it doesn't work, you know, (laughs) um, even really, really successful businesses, um, you'll see that they go cyclical because, you know, they'll get into a crisis, quality will fall off. There'll be some bad consumer thing. It's kind of like Abbott. Remember that stuff with the baby formula, Mm. right? Incredibly profitable business. Everything works like clockwork. All of a sudden, holy shit, we're like killing babies. Like this is not good, (laughs) right? Causes a huge crisis. Now, you know, probably... They're going to go through a huge shakeout. A bunch of people are going to lose their jobs. New people are going to get hired. Fires are going to get put out. They'll get all their processes back in place. 
if you go back there in 10 years, I bet you're going to find them slipping again, <laughs> right? It takes that absolutely obsessive. Uh, I, I just don't believe things go on autopilot, you know, yeah. even in a business like this, where some of the people who work here are so devoted to quality. I mean, they do not, even when I'm like, Hey, look, just ship that. They'll be like, Nope, no, come on. Think about it for a minute. <laughs> you know, right. You, you need those accountability partners are all around you to make mm -hmm. sure that you but, can hold up your end, you know? Yeah. And that's great. But you know, eventually that, that will slip, you know, one mm -hmm. of my, my wife's, uh, favorite, uh, sayings about management is culture eats strategy for breakfast. Culture eats strategy for breakfast. So if you have a culture that is not going to support excellence, it doesn't matter what your strategy is, right? You can come up with the best, you know, plan, but if the people who are working for you don't have a culture of, like you said, accountability, uh, excellence, they really see their identity in this product. I mean, there's a lot of people who want to work here. Yeah. They want to wear this shirt because they know that this means something. Yeah. You know, this is the real fucking deal. We go and drill a hole in the ground to get the water and grow the grain and yeah. You know, we make everything by hand here. Um, and that's great. But if you walk away from that for six months, the owners, hmm. I don't know how long you maintain that, you know. Hmm. Yeah. So for anybody that's really listening now, if you haven't already visited the farm, I guess you make it your priority there to get over there as soon as possible. I've been, yeah, I got my. Out. We'd love to have you. I mean, that's the one that. Probably my favorite thing about this job is the tours. Yeah, that's where I got I mean, my experience. People can see it when I'm on the tours. I just, I love it. I love interacting with the public. It gives me that, you know, I miss being a trial. You know, I miss that courtroom uh, performance aspect. And so being able to do that on the tours really makes me happy. Um, and I have my bad jokes that I tell every <laughs> audience, which is awesome. Um, and I think it's, it's one of the fun things that we do. And uh, I love it when people come out and do that. That's where I got my first exposure. Thanks to my girlfriend. She, she took us out there and I got my expo first exposure and I'm honestly, guys, I'm a lifetime customer. So you can take it from <laughs> me. You can go ahead and take it for yourself. But for somebody that's already vouching, not just because we have him here, but it's literally because I, I drink the bottle on a consistent basis. Um, thank not you. I, no, 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 absolutely not. You know, you got to make sure you <laughs> moderate your entire moderation, your, moderation is everything. I don't want to drown myself. I want to be able to stay here for a very long time. But before yeah, you we know, it's, yeah, you know what? One thing I will add that's very interesting about being in this business is I've seen a number of distillers who drink, in my opinion, too much. Um, we actually drink very little. Like Mike and I, I it is unusual for me to have uh, more than two glasses of bourbon a month. Mm. Oh, wow. A month. I just don't drink a lot. I drank a lot more before we were in this business. Mm. And I, I think it's, um, I think it's just an a, appreciation of it and just not being attracted to that. That's not what gets me off is drinking 
And yeah. what I enjoy is is making it and being part of that process. But I think it's very interesting. And, you know, it's one of the things that would trouble me about making really low cost spirits. Because basically, if you're buying a handle of vodka that costs $20, you probably have a problem. <laughs> I mean, that or you're, you have a big party and you just don't have a lot of money. But if you're going through that much cheap alcohol on a regular basis, and I don't want to support that. I would rather have something that people are keeping for a special occasion. Um, but it is, it's a little bit like, it's not as bad as making tobacco, but. Well, I do want to say to wrap things up, we do like to ask our, all of our guests one last question. And. This is the time where a lot of individuals start to think. So don't feel don't feel bad if you start to get there too. But what do you think is the number one thing holding people back from reaching their full potential? I don't know. That's a really good question. Who am I to judge what their potential is or if they're fulfilling it? I mean, if you feel like you're doing the best you can, I mean, I will tell you, because you get people who are so indignant that everybody should be independent and able to do everything in this world. And, you know, why do we have these social programs and everything else? Yeah. Look, we just went through the history of this company. What are all the things, all the things? I got a law degree. I don't, I'm not carrying a quarter of a million dollars in student loan debt. My family and I was lucky enough to earn some scholarships, but only because I could pay for the first year out of pocket. I also had family subsidies for living expenses and stuff like that. I got to be a, an adolescent way into my 20s because my family had the money to enable that. Who am I to judge somebody else who didn't have those advantages? Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I don't mean to, you know, dodge your question because I'm really not, but it's like, there's, it is freaking hard. I, I, one of my favorite lines is a banker is someone who will loan you money as soon as you prove you don't need it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the one thing that would be really uh, helpful for people is access to capital. And so I think really researching that and watching out for the hard money lender people and really learning about SBA veterans programs, rural USDA has a lot of money. A lot of these loan programs are not being used. Um, so loans, I think, uh, will really help people reach their potential. Um, but access to capital is a huge problem. I think also um, getting trapped in uh, excessive personal spending and credit cards, very dangerous. There was a point in my life where I ran up a good piece of credit card debt and it was a hugely bad idea. Hmm. Um, and the interest rates that are charged on those, frankly, I think they should be illegal. Um, they will trap you in a cycle of debt that is very, very dangerous. Um, uh, uh, another thing that really stood in my way for a long time was feeling like everybody else had this uh, specialized knowledge that I just couldn't get. And you've got, uh, like, I don't pay for appliance repair generally. 
only thing I don't do is HVAC because I don't have the equipment. But like if, if our washing machine broke the other day, check your pockets, people, before you put stuff in the washing machine. <laughs> Get your 12-year-old to do that. <laughs> Just saying. But I had to take the washing machine apart. You can go on YouTube and figure out how to take your washing machine apart. Yeah. Like, don't blow your money on a repair bill. Don't just go out and buy a new appliance. I think the best thing, if I could go back and tell my 18-year-old uh, self anything, it would be get a cheap uh, pickup truck and use Craigslist. And that's how you get furniture. That's how you get um Anything you need is go do that because there is so much expensive stuff. People have so much money and they throw out things that are so expensive. Like even, I mean, I have no, I could go to the store right now and buy whatever I want. Like I don't pay attention to stuff like that, but I won't buy a new uh, dishwasher. You know, I'll go on like for my rental properties, I go on Craigslist, I find one that's broken, they're like parts only, or I find one that's like, oh, we're changing our cabinet colors. So we're getting rid of this $2,000 Bosch dishwasher. Will you give me a hundred bucks for it and come get it out of my garage? Heck yeah, <laughs> I'll do that, you know? And so don't believe that you can't do stuff and don't think you have to spend money on everything. Yes, life is shitty and expensive, but saving money that way, I think, is huge. It's just, um, I, I, it's the one thing that I think I burned so much money that I could have saved and had capital to do stuff in my 20s and 30s if only I had not done things like go out and buy expensive clothes, go out and buy, you know, expensive dinners. I, I, I blew hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, in potential. Cause you, you, if you just think, Oh, if I just took 10 grand a year and put it in the bank, which seems impossible, right? But do you really need a, a $4 cup of coffee every day? You know, mm -hmm. that's, that's two grand a year after tax before taxes, right? Do you really need to go out to lunch and spend twelve dollars? Like I eat a lot of fa not fast food, but like you know, I'll get a subway sandwich. I put a lot of vegetables, but <laughs> you know, it's like that's a calculated decision to spend twelve, thirteen dollars on lunch a few times a week. Yeah. You know, fifty dollars a week, fifty weeks a year. Mm. That's twenty five hundred dollars. Mm -hmm. So between that and a cup of coffee every morning, if you were to put that into a tax sheltered investment, in 10 years, you've got $60,000. That would have been a down payment on a house. Yeah. Or, you know, better financial decisions. You know, I had a car payment that I just was such a waste of money. <laughs> Tell you know? me about it. I mean, do you really need a nice car? And do you really want the kind of girls who like a guy with a nice car? I mean, <laughs> I had a client who used to steal cars. Like oh, as wow. soon as he would get out of prison, he would immediately steal a car and lead the police on a hundred mile per hour chase <laughs> over and over and over again. It's just what he did. 
And I was really interested, you know, like as a student of human behavior, like, <laughs> why do you do that? Right. Why, why, why do you? He said, because girls like a guy in a Lexus. Oh, my. You know? And I mean, that's an extreme example, <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, prison can really cut into your potential. <laughs> right. Um, but, hey. but, but the reality is, you know, <laughs> how different is that decision from spending 700 a month on a car payment plus insurance plus so that's like a thousand dollars a month 12 grand a year when you could okay so what so you drive a beat up honda you know i drive a beat up honda i like to be underestimated yeah i like to roll up at the courthouse and have people think oh i'm gonna roll over this guy hmm. oh look he's wearing a rumpled suit well guess what i just cleaned your billion dollar client's clock in a hearing because you underestimated me. That's okay. You know? So I think I think believe you can do stuff, be thrifty. Don't don't think that uh you know the the short term needs are are uh are real because a lot of those perceived needs are not real needs. You know, there's there's end runs around a lot of stuff. And um, I don't want to, I understand why people think like the deck is stacked, you know? Um, yeah, yeah. I don't know, man. That's a really interesting question. It really is. <laughs> it's meant to give people thinking. What, what do you think? What do you think the answer is? Themselves. Really? Yeah. It's themselves. You're kind of saying the same thing I am because it's like, you know. But it's 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 cool to hear other people say it because, again, I could say it to everybody that I know. But if somebody else says it, then there's a chance that they'll take it a little bit more seriously. <laughs> um, so that's well, really the goal and the objective with that question. I think a good question, too, is, you know, if you could go back and tell your, your you know, 20-year-old yeah. self anything, like, what yeah. would it be? Yeah. Right. Buy Apple stock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. Buy <laughs> <I> Bitcoin. <laughs> That's a better decision. Do you know how many people I've talked to who are like, they look, I'll admit it. I thought Bitcoin was the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> you know, I really did. I was like, there is no freaking way I am throwing money into that. And it was the worst decision I ever made. <laughs> you know, because the reality is, Everybody's like, oh, it fell 50%. Okay, so if you bought it at a dollar, you've only made, you know, $2 million instead of four. I'm okay with that. Yeah, okay. <laughs> All right with that, you know, $1,000 investment not getting me, uh, you know. Yeah. But All right, don't well. buy any of those coins now, though, unless you have something <laughs> to buy with them. Yeah, that was really all that we had. Definitely want to say thank you, Blitz. Uh, Jonathan Blitz, I should say. Shouldn't call you Blitz because I haven't oh, no, had, everybody calls I had me that Blitz. clip. I love it. There it I is. Love there it. it is. I got it. I got the card. <laughs> you guys heard it here live. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, thank you, Blitz, for tuning in. Um, if you are staying you. here, you did stay to the end. Wherever you're listening to it, don't forget to leave us those reviews. If you're listening on YouTube, go ahead and like, comment, and subscribe, and connect with us. Because, again, everything we preach over here is all about growing with us and unleashing your power, unleashing your potential to transform your reality. So until next time, keep on applying those perspectives, education, growth, and collaboration, guys.